Hello, and welcome to Prairie Design Lab. We're coming to you from the Faculty of Architecture at the University of Manitoba. My name is Terry McLeod, and in this podcast, we showcase architecture and design from a prairie perspective. Last time, in episode 33 of the lab called Chachanov, we explored design from the point of view of Winnipegger Alan Chachanov, who is the chair and co-founder of the Master of Fine Arts in the Products of Design program at New York City's School of Visual Arts. Today we have an episode that I'm calling Prairie Graphic Design Lab. We'll explore the work of three independent graphic designers all based in Winnipeg. They are Andrew Boardman, Marcel Lucier, and Justin Ladia. I'd like to start with each of you describing your design practice. Andrew Boardman, what's your design practice? So hi, Terry. So I run a design studio in Winnipeg called Man Overboard. And we're a small studio of designers focused on creating change in the world. We've been, I guess, around for about 15 years, uh, 10 years in its current incarnation. Our focus is on helping organizations uh, achieve the change that they want to see in the world. Marcel, how do you describe your practice, Urban Inc.? Well, it's not world changing, <laughs> but it's, uh, or maybe it does. I, I hope we do have a, an impact somewhat, of course, but we are also a, a small graphic design studio. Uh, there's only three of us, and it has been like that for the past 15 years. We, um, I'd say, have a specific passion more for printmaking and taking the time uh, with the traditional craft of, of design and always trying to be conscientious of that in even um, today's more digital worlds when it comes to design. So for us, it's that balance of both that we try to achieve. Now, Justin, you're the youngest person on this call. How do you describe your design practice? Well, I am a graphic designer at Tatro Design, which is a smallish firm in Winnipeg. For me, I mostly focus on branding and a little bit of illustration. A lot of the clients that we work with are cultural, sometimes institutional. For me, it's mostly trying to figure out the identity of a organization and trying to portray that in the most accurate way for them. But you have a lot of independent work that you do. Yes, uh, I have quite a few passion projects on the side. Thankfully, they don't seem to happen at the same time. But I'm also a communications officer at Icon Winnipeg, which is the anime convention that's hopefully coming back in 2022. I am also the organizer of Pachakcha Night Winnipeg, which is the 20 by 20 presentation format that was devised by Klein Dytham Architecture over in Tokyo. Uh, that happens usually quarterly if there isn't a pandemic. Right now, we're just doing things uh, virtually. And I'm also art directing a puzzle hunt event at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. For yeah, we're going to talk more fully about all of these, Justin, shortly. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> There's, there's quite a bit. I was going to say, there's quite a bit. Let me turn back to Andrew, though. So how did you develop your design skill set? So I went to uh, school for fine arts and uh, received a master's in uh, fine arts and painting many, many years ago, which kind of starts to date me. I got an arts degree at Brown and then a master of fine arts at SUNY Albany uh, in New York. I moved to New York a few years later and started at a large digital agency called Oven, uh, which is no longer in business, but we did these very large, sophisticated websites. Um, and I always tell this brief story because... When I first started my first day at Oven Digital, um, I was invited to one of these meetings and someone invited me in and, and I sat next to the, the sales guy and he said, yeah, 
we're uh, pitching this website and uh, we're not taking sites under a million dollars. You know, that was truly astounding. Um, there are sites now that are built for a million dollars, but they're few and far between. Learned all the ropes in New York, um, went on my own after 9-11, and then uh, started freelancing as a designer and just had a passion for design ever since. Moved here from New York about 15 years ago. You were in New York City on 9-11, working not that far from the site of the horror. I lived in New York for about 10 years. Uh, I did see a lot of 9-11. I worked about 15 blocks from the World Trade Center. And uh, it was one of the many reasons that compelled us to uh, leave New York and seek a different climb. So Marcel, where did you develop your design skill sets? I uh, studied at the Faculty of Fine Arts at the U of M. And I went into that knowing I wanted to uh, do graphic design. So I grew up in rural Manitoba and I had no idea design even existed. Uh, I was the director of uh, marketing in high school <laughs> for the student council. And I would hand illustrate all the posters for our school. And I would naturally illustrate the um, books that we were taught in English class. I thought I wanted to get into journalism, but my English teacher said my writing was way too flowery <laughs> and that maybe I should get into creative writing. I was still very compelled to do things uh, visually, so I thought photojournalism might be my next step. And then from there, I, I met a friend who was a graphic designer here in Winnipeg. They motivated me to pursue a career in design. And I asked them, like, what do I need to take? What do I do to be a designer? And they said, well, go to fine arts, do three years there, and then do two years at Red River for the practical aspect of it. And so I did uh, four years of fine arts and I, I never ended up going to Red River, but I, I did. And, and at the time, fine arts it was more of an academic kind of perspective on design, less practical. It was this was in the mid 90s. And then I, I took some evening classes at Red River afterwards, and I, I joined the board at Martha Street Studio, and I dabbled in printmaking and whatnot. What kind of a challenge was it to start your own firm? It was a challenging at first. I was 25 years old at the time. I had a, a certain stubbornness about me, and I wanted to produce these big screen printed posters, and I wanted to, I suppose, push the envelope a little bit more. And so I took a risk, and I went out on my own after uh, working for six months at a small shop here. And I just, I think I also wanted to just speak with the clients directly. I figured I'm 25, if it doesn't work out, oh, well, you know, it's not the end of the world at this stage. So I just went out on a limb and it was a bit of a challenge at first, but for me, it was more, I was more interested in designing and spending a hundred hours illustrating a poster, even if the budget was 10 hours. And even if a client couldn't afford digital posters, we still printed them in the evenings at Martha Street. For sure, financially, it would have been hard in the beginning, but I would do it all over again. And uh, it was, yeah, it was well worth it. Justin, turning back to you, you mentioned one of your areas of expertise is coordinating Winnipeg's Pachakcha. What is that exactly? Well, Pachakcha Night is a quarterly event where local individuals from the city, usually fairly creative people, come to speak on whatever they want but using a format that is pretty unique. They're given 20 slides to talk about whatever they want, and each slide is only up on the screen for 20 seconds, which gives them a total of six minutes and 40 seconds to present. So it's a very fast format. Usually it's at the Park Theater. People, I think, feel fairly rewarded by the experience. And I enjoy putting these nights together because it always showcases 
the breadth uh, and the diversity that Winnipeg has to offer on the creative scene. How many times have you done that? I think I've been there. I've personally spoken as a guest twice, but I've been organizing since the 31st volume and we had 47. So that was- Oh, I was definitely there then. We've been trying to switch it up a little bit, be a little more conscientious with the kinds of individuals that we have on our stage, but uh, we're pretty chill about who we have on there as long as they represent an area of Winnipeg that people don't necessarily have access to usually. What do you mean by conscientious? When it comes to developing the lineup for Pachakcha, I like to make sure that there are lots of different individuals from different areas being represented on stage because Winnipeg has this particular problem with other events where they like to silo individuals. And I think we have a lot of interest in the people that have already made it and have made more of a name for themselves and put them in front of the stage rather than focus on the individuals that are still building a name for themselves. And I think that's fine having individuals who are already known for their craft and for their work up on stage. But I think there needs to be more of a balance between giving people the spotlight for the work that they are known for and giving people the spotlight for things that they're all they're kind of working on. Because I think the stories are much more interesting when you mix people that have already made it and people that are on their way to doing something great. What does Pachakja have to do with design? Uh, it was a format developed by Klein Diathem Architecture, and they usually do it, well, monthly, but they also have this one event they do yearly for Design Week in Tokyo. It is inherently in the design field, I guess. It was kind of born out of that space. Well, as I learned from Alan Chachanov in our last episode, he has a very comprehensive definition of what design is. And it sounds as if you are designing Pachakcha to be successful uh, in a local context as well. And it's important to reflect the diversity of what's going on here and up and coming people rather than established people. Andrew, you describe your firm as a certified B corporation. What's that mean? So a certified B corporation is essentially a for-profit company that has gone through a fairly rigorous assessment that looks at the totality of an organization, a company's business. So how they're governed, what kinds of clients or customers they have, what their effects are in the community, what they do for and with the environment. Like many of other B Corps around the world, I think there are over 4,000. We've gone through this crazy rigorous assessment. The assessment looks at all facets of your business. And then ideally, when you come out of the assessment, if you score over 80, you essentially can apply to become a B Corporation. It doesn't define us as a studio, but it does kind of undergird a lot of the thinking that I have. And I think that the team has about um, the work we do try to take on work where we believe there's going to have some type of significant social or environmental impact. Would adjuvant capital be an example of that? That's a pretty sizable firm that you are involved with. Tell us about them. Adjuvant capital is a really cool um, venture fund based in New York. They're trying to work with pharmaceutical companies and a lot of other um, organizations around the world to figure out what are the next areas where a pandemic might emerge Um, where uh, people might need new glasses, new uh, technologies uh, to help, you know, stem essentially the next crisis. So they're kind of on the lookout for the companies that are future forward and and trying to think about what might happen next, uh, and especially around health technology and healthcare. 
aren't they somehow connected to Bill Gates and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? Yeah, they were seeded out of the Gates Foundation, um, I think about uh, maybe five or six years ago. And then they're essentially kind of spin-off from that early venture capital that they had received from Gates. And they're doing really well. They're, they're moving fast. I understand that about half of your business is actually outside of Manitoba. I was reading that you worked with a company from Barcelona called Remap. What were you doing with them? They're a really cool um, small business based in Barcelona, husband and wife team that's quickly growing. They're a really interesting organization. They are taking on technology clients, looking at their internal cultures and trying to figure out from a, almost from a psychological standpoint, how do you transform culture to increase the impact of an organization? Part psychology and part um, organizational management. And in New York City, you've been working for a number of years with the uh, Metropolitan Montessori School there. I think this is my longest client, maybe 20 years. We just launched, I think it's version five of their website, which is shocking in web terms. It's an amazing Montessori school um, on the Upper West Side of New York. Really great kids. I know a few of the teachers there. My wife used to teach at Metropolitan Montessori, so there's a full connection. Now, Marcel, I don't know whether you've noticed, but hanging on the wall behind me is a Nuna Now poster. And I understand that you were one of the people involved with Nuna and graphics work in the early days. In fact, the list of the festivals and organizations that you've worked with are among my favorite festivals in the city. Real Pride Film Fest, WSO New Music Fest, Nuna Now, the Canada-Iceland Art Convergence, Plug-In Institute of Contemporary Arts. How did you get involved with such interesting organizations? Fortunately, I, I think uh, my background in fine arts probably helped that along being involved at Martha Street on their board and just, yeah, the connection through the art scene in general in Winnipeg. It's something that I'm still very passionate about. And I've always been a big proponent of promoting arts and culture in the city and definitely helping them if we can and, and going over and beyond when we can for those organizations because they're vital to our city's culture and who we are. And Plugin was a bit of a, a dream client of ours as well. When we um, opened up our studio in the Exchange District, I remember we had just acquired a Vandercook proof press in a new space. And our windows on the fifth floor faced down at the windows of the old Plugin ICA, which was on McDermott. And their exhibition that year, it was late evening, we were renovating the studio. My husband and I are on ladders and we're drywalling the wall and painting everything. And our view was of this exhibition at Plugin where they had projections on their windows of uh, water filling a pool. So every day that we were there working, the water would get fuller and fuller against their windows. And so for us, it was just very metaphorical and, and lovely to see as we were finishing the design of our space, the water plug-in windows was filling up every night. And the Anthony Kendall at the time uh, had just joined as director. And so we presented ourselves to him and we asked if they'd be interested in working with us. And so he was, and he was very interested in our Vandercook proof press. And so we ended up doing some invitations on the proof press, all hand typeset for them. And I don't know if all your listeners are familiar with this, but with offset presses, when you're going to press check, you can control the density of the inks as they sit on the paper. So we would book an hour with the pressman and we would just dial and crank the intensity of the inks randomly throughout mid run. And so you'd get this very wabi-sabi kind of like color shift 
very odd to have a pressman allow us to just crank those dials up and down and play with the levels of cyan, magenta, yellow, and black like that. You know, through Anthony, I would say we were introduced to more members of the arts community. And, and that's a little bit how the, you know, it snowballed effect into getting to do more of the, the arts and culture work as well. In looking through your website, I was thrilled to discover that you did the graphics program for migrating landscapes at the Venice Biennale in 2012. And the reason I have a copy of it here is because my son worked there in the Canadian pavilion. He was one of the attendants at the pavilion and he came home raving about this. So I was looking really closely at the design when I realized that it was you that that had done it. What was special for you in working on migrating landscapes? I think it was just the uh, ability for us to collaborate with architects. At the time, uh, my colleague Evan Marnock and I, it's together, both of us, that, that worked with 546 Architects and Jason Chan to develop the identity. And 546 Architects were in the same building as us. So we would go there, have a little espresso and brainstorm some ideas. And it was just a really... Because Evan, he graduated from environmental design at the Faculty of Architecture. He never formally studied graphic design, and he was my colleague for 12 years. And it was nice for us to inject a little bit of design thinking with architects, because there's different ways of seeing things. And I feel that these two fields have a lot of commonalities. For us, this was a really nice experience, sort of a joining of two design fields to think how migrating landscapes should present itself visually as a brand and in its campaigns and as books. And even the exhibition catalog, we ended up doing French folded perfed pages where you're, you're forced to just tear and rip and break apart. Oh, is that what I'm supposed to do? Because I was looking through it yeah. last night thinking, how do I get to see the inside? Yeah, you have to rip the pages to get to the interior. So our challenge was they wanted it to be a book that really forces you to dig in and discover and to not make things so precious. And so you're literally having to rip apart the pages to view the contents of the inside. So the exterior shell talks about the, the various designers and architects that are coming up with these concepts. And then you rip the pages apart to see the work they've created in a reaction to the landscape that was designed for, for migrating landscapes. Uh, Justin, back to you. You're currently the art director of this year's MIT Mystery Hunt, the MIT as in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So what does the mystery hunt involve? Oh, man, what doesn't it involve? Uh, <laughs> the mystery hunt is, is this very unique event. It's usually in person on campus at the MIT campus in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. What's involved usually is a bunch of puzzles, usually over a hundred or so. It's a combination of word, logic, abstract type puzzles where people try to find answers and use those answers to try to get another answer and basically try to find a coin that is hidden on campus. And that coin, whoever gets that coin or whichever team finds that coin gets to write and direct the next hunt. And so our team that won in 2021 went by the name Palindrome. And I was lucky enough to be on that team. And uh, they've asked me to do art direct based on some of the things that I've done in the past. I should say that this is a massive 
passion project and every single person on this team is doing it for the love of puzzling and the experience of trying to find answers and, and unlock things with your teammates. Nobody's getting paid for this, but we're still doing it because we love the, the idea of it. But you've got people from all over the world involved in this, right? Yeah, uh, actually, the teams that we have for Palindrome or for the writing team even consists of a lot of different kinds of people. There's obviously a lot of them are going to be American because it is an American event. We have a a seven time, I think, Jeopardy champion. A couple of folks who have written New York Times bestselling books. We have folks from all over the world, too, like from Australia and the UK. They mostly work in tech people who write for TV and stuff like that, but not a lot of people who are visual designers or artists and stuff like that. So I am lucky that I was able to carve out a niche in this team and get the opportunity to do this. And I just happened to land with the right team and, uh, and I was there at the right time. And so that's how I ended up being the art director. What interests you so much about palindromes? Those are words that are spelled forward and backward the same yes. way, right? That's correct. The palindrome is a phrase, statement, or word that is that is spelled the same way forwards and backwards, like kayak or radar or madam, I am madam or anyway. What, what did you use last year? Not so Boston? <laughs> That's correct. Our team usually runs with some sort of palindromic name. Our team name each year changes, but we're known as palindrome for that reason. So last year, our team name was not so Boston because typically we would be in Boston to actually participate. But because we were remote, we were not so Boston. Uh, and who and is Dr. It. Awkward? <laughs> Dr. Awkward was a another team name, but that was during the year that Palindrome won last time. And I think that was in 2008. And so we called ourselves Dr. Awkward because it was based on a mystery. I think it was a murder type mystery where it was Dr. Awkward that got murdered. But a bunch of different Palindromes have come and gone after the last 20 or so years that Palindrome has been with the event. Andrew, I know that Man Overboard is focusing on what you call greening the web. What's greening the web mean? Well, you know, every time we're on a Zoom call or every time you tweet something or send an email, a little bit of carbon kind of gets released into the atmosphere. A lot of the servers that we use to kind of power the internet are powered by, in turn, fossil fuels. The numbers keep changing, but they're large. One of the things that I try to call attention to when I'm speaking to, to clients or to partners and colleagues is that these pixels and the servers that we're using, the, um, the electricity that we use to power this incredible thing called the internet also um, has a, an impact. So that whole concept of, you know, please don't print out this email. Let's keep the world green. That email still has an environmental impact, of course. So I believe that, you know, eventually we're going to get to the point where all of this energy is going to be uh, renewably powered, but we still have a long ways to go. Um, and I think you've most recently seen interest around this around cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular. Um, all the server farms being run all over the world that are powered very close to facilities that are using fossil fuels to essentially mine crypto. When we spoke the other day, you mentioned something that I thought was kind of significant. You said that you are worried about the state of design that Instagram is using its so-called designs against graphic designers. What do you mean by that? I have this very difficult relationship with Instagram. Instagram is this like incredibly beautiful, phenomenal tool of visual communication. But at the same time, it's run by a company that is essentially well known from all the recent news reports that is essentially working against us. And so my worry about Instagram and a lot of social media is that they've invented these wonderful 
democratizing tools for us to use. And we're not really using it except to just send the, you know, the, the most banal and sometimes the most evil um, types of communications to each other. So I do worry, I, I worry that these democratized tools, which are as powerful as they are, are essentially undermining us. And in particular with Instagram, a lot of the, the negative effects that are you know, just being hidden. You know, girls who have poor self body image, all the, the kind of privacy issues that result from Instagram and Facebook. So I think we're starting to get ahead of it. I actually think there's regulation coming soon. And I think designers are starting to realize the implications of their work on Instagram, but we've got a little ways to go. I was digging into your website and there's a regular blog that you folks post on Man Overboard. And one of your posts back in September was titled, How to Succeed in the Design Profession. Oh, yeah. I know one of your colleagues wrote it, but yeah. what advice does it offer? One of the things is be honest in a very forthright and a very serious and, and thoughtful way. That's our job as designers is to tell folks when they're right and when they're wrong. I hope that young designers come to recognize that that's that's in their power and it is their power to, to be able to be truth tellers. And to turn to the others, Marcel and Justin, how would you answer the question, how to succeed in the design profession? Andrew, I think you nailed it with that word. I think it's about communicating things visually to help communicate an experience. And I think if you can do that honestly, without being too influenced by the likes of prettiness on Instagram and superficial artifice, and do it with a bit of grit, a lot of heart and research, I think that's a good beginning. What about for you, Justin? How do you see it? I think a lot of success in graphic design has to do with one's experience, I think. And I think there needs to be a lot more emphasis on creating more experiences for yourself so that you can bring those new sort of ideas into your work. What you do as a designer is you try to interpret what your client says, but you can't do that if you, the lens of that client is small. It has to be a pretty big lens, I think. So if you can expand your lens by like doing all these things that pique your curiosity, that should at least help you get on your way to be a successful graphic designer. And you also need to be conscientious about kinds of people that you talk to, like by branching out and doing things that may not necessarily be design related. Like a, a lot of the reasons why I do all of these other things on the side is because I want to expand what my horizons are and eventually use that to develop a design sensibility that is really informed and thoughtful. One of the things that people tell me about my sort of work is that a lot of what I do is considered and thoughtful and, and based on different aspects of the world rather than what I've been told by the client. And so I chalk that up also to having been educated through the environmental design program. The way that I benefited from it was through figuring out a way to think as a designer. And so basically the short answer is do a lot of stuff, hone your thinking, uh, and then use that to your advantage in your actual work later on. Now, for those who are listening to the podcast, if you want to go to the Man Overboard website, uh, one of your colleagues is Andrew. She wrote this uh, based on her 20 years of experience. But the thing that I found most interesting is the 
the steps along the way that you can expect to experience as a developing professional designer. And there were about 15 steps that she laid out. When After you do this, then you'll probably get to do this. Then after that, do that. And that seemed to me to be a surprisingly concise way of thinking about your career path. Design is changing, right? Very, very quickly. And the design tools are changing as well. But there is, even, even as you know, the tools and systems and, and ways of thinking about design has changed, there really is a path. There really is a way for you to get from A to B to, um, or A to Z. You know, a lot of it is grit, you know, is, is really just nose to the grindstone work. We're, we're kind of like the truck drivers of the art and communications world. Now, you teach at uh, University of Manitoba some of the time, right? Uh, I teach uh, usually one class a semester. And um, yeah, it's a real privilege to be teaching design there. What kind of design do you teach? Um, right now, I'm teaching uh, design theory and criticism, which is um, a really fun class. Uh, I've got about 14 students. We're trying to ask the big questions. Why do we design? And what makes us designers? And are we authors? Are we artists? Are we designers? Who are we? And what do we do? I think that our world, our industry, I feel is very saturated right now. The biggest question I would ask a student that was studying design right now is where their desire to be a designer comes from and to really take a moment and reflect. I mean, I'd love to hear from you guys, where do you think design is going in the next few years? Like over the next two, three, four, five years, where do, where do you see things headed for designers, for us? I recently hired two young designers that have joined our team and they're in their early 20s. You know, I'm, I'm realizing now, like I'm, you know, 43. We have so much in common, but I see like there's definitely new stuff happening. The one that I'm, I'm seeing the most is there's a lot of students, students are taught how to animate a lot more. And that's something that 15 years ago just wouldn't come with the trade. But now there, are, I, I find that it is a reality that design is definitely more and more present in the digital world. We're printing much less. You know, I'm looking into Figma right now. <laughs> into what? This is a thing, Figma. Just learning about it, brand new. I have no idea how to no, use it. No, Justin knows what it is. It's a program used to help develop interfaces and user experiences on like things like websites and apps and stuff like that. It helps people design these things in a more effective and efficient way because things like Photoshop and, and Illustrator and all of those traditional means traditional digital uh, programs uh, don't really provide that functionality that allows for that uh, kind of design to happen. How do you spell it? F-I-G-M-A. Oh, F-I-G-M-A. Okay. And what's really cool about it, we're using it now at our studio too, is you can uh, collaborate uh, in real time, move things around, shift images, change content. It's super cool. I think one of the things that I'm really excited about in the design world right now is that people that are coming into the design world who are fresh and new are offering a really interesting perspective on what it means to live as people, as citizens in society. And I think there's a lot more importance being placed on supporting people within society in a much more conscientious way, particularly with the younger designers. They're trying to find ways to help propel that message of what it means to be a good human living on planet Earth right now. And that to me is really exciting because like, my idea of design back then was not really influenced by social things. It was mainly me looking at something that I thought looked good. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. But no, I think there's a lot more designers nowadays who are just like, 
I can use my talents to help marginalized individuals or like help pr propel a message of sustainability and making sure that people don't mess up the earth for the next two years or something like that. And that's really exciting to me because I think design does have a role to play in sending messages out there to the general public and having them sort of consume the stuff that we make for them. And I think if we can do that in a way that helps the population, that's a good thing. I like the fact we're diverse now. I, I, I can see actual designers of color. When I was going through school, which wasn't admittedly not that long ago, uh, the designers of color were not people that I've seen like on Instagram or on in magazines and stuff like that. It's always fairly monochromatic for lack of a better word. But I'm really happy to see that there's progress there and that things are progressing in the way that I think is, in a, is going in the right direction. I'm in agreement with um, this concept of design being kind of used and sometimes abused by lots of different communities. And I think it is time for designers to kind of reclaim that word. It is time for us to kind of have that word back. It's a, it's a very powerful word. I agree. Hire a designer. Don't stretch Helvetica, please. No matter <laughs> what you do, please don't stretch it. I don't care what your professors tell you. Students, this one's for you. Don't use, just use Helvetica and don't stretch it, okay? Don't squeeze it. Don't do anything to it. Justin Ledia, thank you so much. Thank you. Andrew Boardman, thank you very much. Thank you. And Marcel Lucier, thank you so much. Thank you, Harry. Great fun today on Prairie Design Lab. Lots of interesting ideas. Thank you. Talk thank soon. You. Okay. okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye. Marcel Lucier owns Urban Inc. of Winnipeg. Justin Ladia is an independent designer currently in the employ of Tetro Design. Andrew Boardman is the owner and chief designer of Man Overboard. Thanks to all who help and support this podcast. I'm Terry McLeod, your host, producer, and writer. You can catch us each Wednesday morning at 11.30 a.m. on UMFM Radio at 101.5 FM in Southern Manitoba. You can also listen to us on Spotify and Apple and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. <laughs>